We'll be looking at various texts, so just have it, have your Bible ready. We are continuing tonight to deal with the question of what happens to infants when they die. Whether we're speaking of a child lost in a miscarriage or a child that dies after birth, we want to know if there are biblical grounds to say that this child is in heaven. Now let me quickly remind you of several things that we saw last week. First, last week I argued that the ultimate grounds of our peace and our comfort in the loss of a child must be our faith in God as one who is sovereign and as one who always does what is good and right. We should not say, God, you have taken the life of my child and I will be at peace only as long as I am sure that my child is where I want my child to be. God, you must do things my way and if you do things my way, I will be at peace with you. That can't be the way we talk. We must be willing to say that God is the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to do with all of His creation, including people, whatever He wills. And we know that what He does is always right and always just and always good. And this must be the true anchor for our soul in the midst of loss. Now second... We took a fairly lengthy amount of time last week to deal with some of the arguments that people make for believing that infants go to heaven, but these were unbiblical arguments. These were arguments that if we're going to be sound, mature believers, we we can't accept those arguments. They ranged from universalism to the belief that infants have a second chance to choose Jesus after they die to the views that that infants are saved by baptism or that infants are saved by the faith of their parents. We dismissed the idea that babies are born purely innocent because we saw that the Bible blatantly contradicts that in several places. We also dismissed the idea of an age of accountability which says that children are innocent and cannot be truthfully judged by God until they reach a certain age. Third, I brought to your attention four statements. Four statements, these were made by a a pastor, Jeff Spry. I thought they were very helpful, and so I quoted them to you. I'm going to quote them again. Number one, no theory of infant salvation can be biblically sound if it ignores the way that original sin leaves all humans, including infants and the mentally incapable, both guilty and totally, radically depraved. That is, any theory that rejects the Bible's teaching about original sin and total depravity cannot be a theory that we hold to, or else we deny the very Word of God. Second, if deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved, Their salvation can only be by the sovereign grace of God. The Bible clearly teaches that the Father chooses persons to salvation from eternity past and that this salvation is solely based on grace alone. Any view of infant salvation or uh, salvation of the mentally impaired that does not rest on the grace of God cannot be acceptable. Third, 
If deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved, their salvation must be on the basis of the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. That is, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way anyone is ever saved. So any view of infant salvation that has that infant going to heaven apart from the work of Jesus Christ is not a view that we can accept. And fourth, I brought before you the suggestion that the Bible teaches that God... I'm sorry, statement number four. If deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved their salvation must occur before death. That is, there is nowhere in the Bible that gives any indication that people can be saved after death. And so if infants are saved, it must happen before they die. Now, last week I brought before you the suggestion that the Bible teaches that God saves His people, all His people, all His elect, God saves them on the basis of Christ's work through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming and changing our hearts. It's as if Christ accomplished everything we need at the cross, and then the Spirit is the one who takes the medicine provided and paid for by Christ and applies it to us. And so if anyone is saved, it is by the work of Christ through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I suggested the possibility that God includes all infants, and I would also include the mentally handicapped, those who are severely mentally handicapped, that God has chosen for all infants and the severely mentally handicapped to be in that group. My belief is that God has sovereignly chosen to save every child who dies in infancy and that He does so as a great act of grace. My belief is that infants are saved the same way I am on the basis of Christ having died for their sin. In their case the sin of their father Adam, which they inherited. Infants are saved by the Spirit of God doing the work of the new birth in their souls before they die. Now my task tonight is to give you some biblical evidence that infants do in fact go to heaven. And so I want to point you to several passages, some of which, I'm going to be honest, some of these, I mean, some of these carry more weight than others, okay? Um, we're, we're doing the best we can to say, what does the Scripture say about this? And, um, and so some of these, if it, if it was just that one passage by itself, I'd have to say, I don't know. But when you take the number of those passages together, I think the evidence stacks up pretty well. So I want to begin with some passages that seem to teach that infants are in heaven. And there are a few of these, a few passages that seem to teach infants are in heaven. Look first at probably the most famous one, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And let's begin in verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Talking here about Bathsheba's child after David took Bathsheba to himself when he should not have. 
Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David says that the time for fasting and praying for the child has ended. The child has died. The child will not return. But David still anticipates being with the child again. He says, I shall go to him. What does David mean by that? Well, some suggest that David here is strictly referring to the grave. That the child died and is returning to dust, and David says, I will do the same. But David doesn't say he will go to the grave. David says he will go to his son. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, when we studied the death of Jacob, we saw that there was a belief even way back then at the beginning of human history that when a person died, he went to be with his ancestors. So, for example, when Abraham died, we're told, we were told that he was gathered to his people. Now, Abraham was buried in Canaan, far away from his people. So this was not about where his body was gathered to. His body was not gathered to his people. Rather, this is referring to his spirit, his soul. And the same line is used of Jacob when he died. He was gathered to his people. Even in those early days of Genesis, before the realities of heaven and hell had been as clearly revealed to them as they have been revealed to us, people understood that there was life after death. They understood that souls go somewhere after death. And the teaching of the Old Testament is that when you die, your soul goes to be gathered to your people. Now remember, our true family is not those related to us by blood. Our true family are those who either share our faith or who are like us in not having faith. When Abraham died, his soul was gathered to his people. People like Noah and Enoch and Abel, other men of faith who had lived before him. Abraham went to be with his spiritual ancestors in heaven. 
Now, David clearly seemed to understand that souls went somewhere at death. And David believed that God was going to bring him to where God himself was in heaven. For example, Psalm 17, at the top of the psalm, in the scriptures, it is clearly stated, Psalm 17 is a psalm of David. And David says at the end of that psalm, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. He's speaking about death. And he says that when he closes his eyes in death, he will open them. He will behold God's face in righteousness. He will be satisfied with God's likeness. So David was a man who knew something about heaven. The concept of heaven was not foreign to him. And there was ample reason to believe that he knew that God was there, because that's in the Scripture. And he knew that the souls of those who trust God go there. And so David was waiting for the day when he would be gathered to his people, the faithful who trusted God. And he seemed to believe that his son was one of them. I shall go to him. He will not return to me. And there's another example. Look at 1 Kings 14. 1 Kings 14. We're going to begin in verse 7. In, in this passage, Ahijah the prophet is issuing God's pronouncement of a curse on King Jeroboam. Jeroboam's wife has come to the prophet because their baby boy is sick. And Jeroboam has been a wicked king. And so what we have beginning in verse 7 is the prophet's words, really God's words through the prophet to Jeroboam's wife. Here's what he says beginning in verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, and made you leader over my people Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grace, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of of Jeroboam. So all of the family of Jeroboam, all of the household of Jeroboam is going to be eaten by dogs or eaten by birds of the air. 
But there is an exception. This little boy. God says that this little boy will die and will be mourned and will be buried. God says that in this little boy alone, there is something pleasing to him. The indication seems to be that Jeroboam and his family are cursed by God. Jeroboam and his family are under judgment. But this boy is being blessed. There are very few who would read this passage and think that God is saying that he's going to bring this little boy to hell. Rather, the indication seems to be that God has blessing upon this child. He appears to have been spared the judgment that was coming upon the rest of the family. Many suggest that it's because he was younger than the rest. And because he was younger, because he was still a a little child, he was spared and the blessing of God was upon him. He was one of God's. Maybe. Another passage to consider is the book of Job, chapter 3. Let's look there. Job, chapter 3. Job is quite possibly the oldest book of our Bible. It is certainly one of the oldest pieces of literature in existence. Job did not have the benefits of progressive revelation. Job did not know as much about heaven and hell and the afterlife as as we know with the bulk of Scripture that has been given to us. But that said, in these verses, Job is basically saying that he would have been better off had he died as a child. He speaks of where he would be had he died as a child. He describes this place as a place of peace. He describes this place as a piece of rest. This isn't hell. I think it's an early picture of heaven. Look at verses 11 through 19. Job 3, beginning in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. And then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from trembling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now Job's basic statement here is that it would have been better off for him had he died at birth. But this wouldn't make sense if infants, when they die, go to a place of torment. This statement only holds up if infants go to a place like he describes, a place where sorrows and trouble are no more. Now, I suggested earlier that the salvation of infants would require the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing spiritual life to that child before death. And this would often mean the Holy Spirit doing work in the soul of a child who has not even yet been born, a child that might not live to be born. Are there any indications in the Scripture that God's Spirit might be at work in the souls of children while they are still in their mother's womb? Let me point you to three passages. Look first at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. 
sure you know this passage. We're going to begin in verse 13. It's a very precious passage of Scripture. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This passage reminds us that God is not far off from us when we are being formed in our mother's womb. Just the opposite. It is God who knits us together. It is God who is worthy of our praise because it is He who makes us fearfully and wonderfully. We are the work of God's hands. So is God's Spirit unable to work among the unborn? Absolutely not. God's Spirit is always at work in every part of God's creation, including even in a mother's womb. Second, look over just a little bit at Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. We'll see the same principle here that God's Spirit is not absent from a child not yet born. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The main thing I want us to see here is, one, it was God who formed Jeremiah in the womb. So God was working there. He was not absent there. And second, that God says, even as I formed you in the womb, before then, I knew you. My special love was upon you. Now, could it not be that God's Spirit is at work in the forming of every human being? That God's Spirit is always working in accordance with God's purposes for that human being, even if that purpose is to bring that child to heaven before birth? I believe the Holy Spirit's at work in every child. From the, from the moment of conception on, all throughout our lives, the Spirit is at work all throughout this world. And so it would not be a difficult thing for the Spirit knowing that God's plan for that child is for that child to come to Him even before birth. It would not be a hard thing for the Spirit to cause that child to be born again before that child was ever born. Not a hard thing at all. Look with me at Luke 1, verses 14 through 15. This is where we read about John the Baptist. Luke 1, verses 14 through 15. An angel tells Zechariah about this baby boy who is about to come into the world. Beginning in verse 14, the angel says to Zechariah, And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from where? Even from his mother's womb. 
And we remember how John the Baptist leaped within his mother's womb when he heard the voice of Mary carrying Christ in her womb. The indication seems to be that from very early in his development, John the Baptist had a special blessing of the Spirit upon him. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist was born again before he was born. We, we don't know. We, we can't say that. That's not God's normal way. Let me be clear about that. God's normal way of causing people to be born again is for them to be older, able to understand things so that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God processed in the mind and brings spiritual life to our hearts. But in the case of infants, in the case of the mentally incapable, I would say there's, there's good reason to believe that the Spirit can cause them to be born again. Another possible evidence that God saves and brings infants to heaven is the sheer number of saints that are in heaven. Spurgeon thought this was one of the best arguments for believing that infants go to heaven. Have you ever considered the fact that there are almost two paradoxical statements in the Scriptures? For example, Matthew 6.14, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few... So there's just going to be a few people in heaven, right? If only, if only a few, if only a remnant of humanity is going to follow the narrow road, if, if only a, a minority of human beings on planet earth are going to follow Jesus, then heaven, heaven few, right? And then John is given a glimpse of the saints in heaven. And what does he see? After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could even number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One possible reason that heaven is going to have so many citizens one possible reason that heaven may even have more citizens than hell is that God saves little ones when they die. You have to remember that for most of history and still in some parts of our world, infant mortality rates are very high. The way we live today where most, child, most children see their second birthday, that's not the way it's always been. In fact, it's not the way it's been for most of human history. And then when you consider the number of miscarriages, or even in a highly industrialized, medically advanced nations like, nation like ours, and miscarriages happen all the time. We don't talk about them, but they're very common. Heaven could be very full. Gloriously fuller than hell. Because God saves them. It's a possibility. Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Yes, he was teaching us to have childlike faith. I get that. But the disciples were actually hindering children, little children, from coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Above all these other arguments... There's one that's been particularly convincing to a number of um, 
very smart Christians in the past, a lot of men that I look up to and admire, they have found this particular argument convincing. You see what you think. It is the argument of Al Mohler, who we prayed for this morning, the, the president of Southern Seminary. He and Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, uh, put out an article on this subject many years ago saying, here's what we believe the Bible says about this matter. Um, this argument, men like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield uh, believed this argument. And it's this, that on the day of judgment, God will judge people on the basis of the deeds they actually committed in their lifetimes. That though God would be just and right to condemn people to hell on the basis of their guilt in Adam alone, God has declared that His judgment is not going to be according to Adam's sin, but that our judgment is going to be according to our own works. Since infants die before being capable of discerning good from evil, because infants die before being able to choose the good and refuse the evil, God brings them to heaven. They're not innocent. They have the guilt of Adam. But that guilt has been taken away in Christ. And since there are no other obstacles in their way, no sins that they themselves have actually committed in their own lives, God brings them to heaven. Now, the basis of this view is many passages that speak of judgment being according to what people have done. Revelation 20, verse 12, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Or we saw it in Romans 2, um, a couple years ago now. Romans 2, 6, He will render to each one according to his works. The other basis of this view are those passages that seem to teach that God shows mercy on those children who have not yet reached a, a maturity of being able to choose good and abstain from evil. And so last week we looked at Isaiah 7.16. Speaking of a child in the midst of a prophecy, Isaiah says, Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So God points to a child and says, before the child reaches a certain point, and that point is the child will reach a stage of being able to choose good and refuse evil, certainly implying that there's a stage when the child cannot choose good and then refuse evil. And I suggested at the very end of last week's message that in Deuteronomy 1, we see an example of mercy being shown to such children. So look there with me one more time. Deuteronomy 1 34 through 40. This is the passage that, that has clinched the argument for some. I don't know if it'll clinch it for you, but uh, this, this passage has been very vital to some people in their thinking about this. You see if it holds weight in your mind and in your heart. In this passage, Moses is recounting for us what happened with the people of Israel during their years in the wilderness. They're soon to be passing into the promised land, but Moses is reminding them why they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is reminding them what happened earlier. Beginning in verse 34, Deuteronomy 1. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And He swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he is trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. 
Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So God saw the unbelief, God saw the disobedience of Israel in the wilderness, and He swore not one of you is going to enter into my promised land. Remember, promised land, picture of heaven. God's people in the wilderness, a picture of this life. And God says to those who did not believe, people of unbelief, people of disobedience, you shall not enter. Except for Caleb. Why? Because he believed. He trusted me when the others didn't. And Joshua will enter because he follows me. But God says also that these children who are not yet at a place of having knowledge of good or evil, that this curse of wandering in the wilderness and not being allowed into into, um, Canaan, that that would not fall upon them, but that they would be allowed to enter once they were grown. Were these children guilty in Adam? Absolutely. But they themselves had not knowingly committed good or evil. God allowed them to enter the promised land. And the same could be said of Jeroboam's child that we read about earlier. The rest of Jeroboam's family being um, coming under the curse of God for the sins that they had committed. But God sparing the young boy. Then there's Jeremiah 19, 4 through 5. I think um, John MacArthur, uh, this, this is the passage that uh, he turns to that he thinks of when people ask him this question about what happens to infants when they die. Jeremiah 19, verses 4 through 5, God is speaking about the very heinous act of child sacrifice, of parents sacrificing their children in worship to a God. The people of Judah had become so wicked, they were offering up their own children and sacrifices to Baal. And what does God say? Jeremiah 19, 4 through 5, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of who? Of innocence. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. What's really interesting here is that God explicitly calls these children who are being sacrificed to Baal, innocence. This seems contrary to all these other passages about, behold, I was conceived in iniquity, and the wicked are estranged from birth, and there's none good, no, not one. And A heart is deceitful above all else. All of these, these verses about the wickedness of the human heart, but God declares these children innocence. Why? Well, it can't be that they had no guilt at all. Romans 5 makes clear they had the guilt of Adam. But it seems to be that these children had not yet reached in a place of knowing how to choose good or refuse the evil. And I think I remember MacArthur saying when God calls someone innocent, you probably shouldn't not call them innocent. 
I don't know what I think about that. I mean, I think Romans 5 is clear about the guilt of all humanity. But I think there is something to be seen in that passage. And what's interesting is that if we were to look to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was talking about the very same thing and the very same practice of child sacrifice, God refers to those children as my children. He doesn't say you're sacrificing your children. He tells the parents, you've been sacrificing my children. It seems to indicate they're mine, right? You're killing them, but they're mine. So, <coughs> excuse me, on the basis of passages like these, the conclusion that I can come to and have a, a good conscience about it and feel that I'm being biblically faithful and I think there's real evidence there is that on the cross, Jesus removed the guilt of Adam from all his people, including all infants, all those who are mentally impaired, and there is no other obstacle that keeps them from entering heaven. On the basis of the grace of God, through the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, I believe all infants and the mentally incapable go to heaven. The last argument that I could make is this one. God loves children, and God loves to show mercy. Our God is a God who delights in showing mercy. What do we see this morning? All of the story of human redemption is the story of God showing off His grace. He loves to show grace. He is slow to anger, but quick to show love. And if that is God's nature, then could it not be that God has delighted Himself by showing mercy to the most vulnerable and the most helpless of all human beings, those who die young. Now those are the arguments. One by itself might not be enough to, to make the case, but I, I think cumulatively they, they're persuasive that God is gracious and that our little ones who have passed away are indeed in heaven. Now this we know for sure. God is sovereign, and God always does what is good and what is right. And that must be the anchor for our souls. Amen? Let's pray.